Thanks, Mike. I'm always a little nervous when I hear that there's going to be an announcement made before I come up. There's going to be some bombshell happen, and I'm going to be, you know, okay, here I am. <laughs> but uh, it's good to be back with you, those of you watching online. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to carve out this morning to be with me. I'm certainly hoping the time that uh, Matt and Brandy can be away is uh, profitable for them as they uh, look at uh, possible college choices. It's always a big decision any parent makes. Many of you know that. And uh, so it's a privilege for me to kind of fill in for a bit and uh, just cover while Matt does that. Um, I have to say, I may have bitten off more than I can chew in what I want to do today with you. Uh, if you've looked at your bulletin, I would like, uh, my plan is to take you through the Passion Week in approximately 30 minutes. Um, that being said, you know, I'm currently, as a contrast, reading a book right now, excellent book on the Passion Week that's over 650 pages on one week. So uh, we will be running today. There's many of you are old enough to remember the old hymn, I Walk Today Where Jesus Walked. Well, today we're going to be sprinting today where Jesus walked uh, to try to get through this. But hopefully it'll give us a template. When I was in seminary, uh, there was a man who mentored me who was uh, very keen on instilling in all of us the importance of seeing the big picture. Uh, too often we get so detail-oriented in our preaching and teaching that we lose uh, the, the, the overview. As committed as I am to expositional and exegetical verse-by-verse preaching, I recognize there is always the danger, and some of us have experienced this, of people who get so detail-oriented that we lose that big picture. You know, I think of, the, of a student or a guy, that will, a pastor, who will say, okay, I'm going to spend six weeks on the word the. You know, and we get buried in the, you know, and then he comes back after that and he says, now I'm going to spend another eight weeks on the word and. You know, we don't see the forest, we don't see the trees, we see the little piece of bark on the side of a tree and we feel a little bit like the disciples with just fragments of bread left over. You know, how do I put this together? So one thing about me is I try to, try to do this, and our, the man that mentored me was very big on this. He would always make us, as we studied the Bible, at the end of that, he says, I want you to put together a chart. He was really big on charts. One page chart. I want to see it all on a page. So occasionally, folks, stepping back and actually looking at an um, overview of something kind of helps us have the framework. As Matt has introduced the Passion Week, we're already in it in our discussion, kind of stepping away from it, getting a framework to see that Passion Week unfold in front of us gives us a way of templating it so that we can, as he's talking, go, okay, that's where this fits. That's where, the, oh, that's why this event happened where it does. So for today, we're going to try to race through the Passion Week. I'll give you some, some pictures, kind of relate events, kind of tie some things together from all the Gospels so we can see, okay, this is how the Passion Week is flowing. And we're going to do that in about 30 minutes. <laughs> Lord willing. All right, so if you have your bullet and take it out, you can follow me along. Of course, one of the questions we want, might want to ask, let's make sure they get this thing working here. I believe I got it on. Oh, no, I don't have it on, sorry. Now I'm on. Okay, why study the Passion Week? Why look at this week? Well, some preliminary thoughts to think about, folks, as we do this, is that all four Gospels commit significant attention to this one week of Jesus' life. It's interesting that some Gospels, if you use an example of the birth narratives, Matthew and Luke give us detailed information on the birth narratives. We just went through that with Christmas. 
Mark never mentions it. Nothing on the, the birth or childhood of Jesus. John, of course, focuses on the divinity of Christ, his preexistence. So we have certain areas where the gospel writers are selected, but on the Passion Week, without a doubt, all four of them are going to focus on this in extreme detail. This is important to them. If it's important to them to communicate it to us as the followers of Christ, we need to pay attention to this one week. If you notice my commentary on the PowerPoint, this week commands significant attention in the Gospels. As scholars have looked at this, they've tried to understand, okay, what, how much attention is given to this one week of Christ's life. Uh, estimates place it anywhere between 25% to up to 40%. In fact, Mark's Gospel, 40% of Mark's Gospel focuses on only one week of Jesus' life. Now, that ought to tell us something right there. This is very important. The material that we're in right now as a church with Matt is significantly important for us to understand that. We know about this week more than any other time in Christ's life. We can actually, with this week, break it down to almost hourly detail of what Jesus is doing by the hour. I'll do some of that with you. you know, hour by hour, what's actually happening during this week. And then finally, as we kind of wrap this up, understanding the context and harmonizing the gospel accounts helps us to understand these events and kind of frame that in our thinking. So as Matt is teaching through this, and we're a little bit into it, we're actually into what I would say is Monday afternoon, creeping into Tuesday, uh, in the, in the triumphal, or after the triumphal entry, into the Passion Week, that's where we're currently at as a congregation in the study of Matthew, all right? And most of us have been doing that with him now for, for several months as we've worked through this. Now, why is it called the Passion Week? Let's just ask that question. Some of you wonder, well, why call it the Passion Week? Well, how does it get that name? Well, the answer to that, most scholars believe, comes from the old King James. Some of you probably still use the authorized version, as they like to call it, where it says this, to whom also he shewed himself alive after his passion. So this phrase, the Passion Week, some of you remember the movie that came out years ago, The Passion of the Christ, uh, when Mel Gibson did that movie. And by the way, put that out of your mind. Uh, I'm not here to be a film critic, but there was a lot wrong with that film, a lot. <laughs> uh, just leave it there, all right? Um, but The Passion Week comes from this reference in the old King James, as we like to refer to it, okay? Now, as I walk us through this, folks, I want to just be upfront and honest. There are scholars and good men and women that will disagree on maybe the dates, there's issues on the dates. Is it a 33 AD date, a 30 AD date? Is it um, you know, the event sequencing? I, I know people, I have a colleague that I work with that places certain events on different days. And, and it's not my place to get into that debate with you. If any of you wanna talk about that in a more formal way, I can talk with you later, I'm happy to do that. Um, I'll just kind of walk you through, that it's the best of my biblical understanding of this, kind of walk you through that so you have a sense of how the events unfold. Uh, we usually don't debate the events, it's usually a sequencing issue. When did the event happen in the week? Uh, just be aware of that conversation. Now, to do this, you might wonder, why did Mike read the story of Lazarus? How does that fit into this? Well, folks, that event is the key event that triggers what's going to come. There's a reason why I wanted him to read John 11. Now, most of us don't associate the Passion Week with the resurrection of Lazarus, but that event is going to start some wheels in motion that are going to lead us into the Passion Week. And so to do this previously in Christ's life, let's go back to the raising of Lazarus, which is in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. 
Now, very quickly, folks, just to kind of give you a context. In John 10 and 11, things are escalating in Jesus' life. We're getting near the end of his life. We, if we look at when the crucifixion happens, which I place in April, if we go back a few months into December, Jesus is in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. If you go look at John chapter 10, it says he is at the Feast of the Dedication. That is a celebration. Hanukkah is an intertestamental, non-biblical celebration of the deliverance of Jerusalem under the Maccabees. That's a whole interesting story. I could develop it with you. But he's in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. During that time, now we're months away from the crucifixion, but during that time, the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders has escalated significantly. If you go back and read John chapter 10, they're beginning to confront him. Come out. Are you, are you claiming to be the Christ? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? And he makes a famous statement in John chapter 10 where he says to them that basically, I am. And if you read carefully in John 10, it says they seek to arrest him. They're wanting to get him. Now, Jesus does something significant. I'm, I'm running quickly through this for sake of context. Once he, is, he knows that they want to arrest him, Jesus moves from Judea over to Perea. He changes geographic areas. Now, Matt had said once in, in uh, church, I remember him saying this, there are certain people in this church that are geographic geeks. Well, folks, you're looking at Abu Geek. I'm the father of all geeks, as they say in Arabic. I love biblical geography. I live for biblical geography. All right? That's my thing. And what Jesus is doing, when he moves from, from Judea over to Perea, he goes into the area of Herod Antipas. Now, why does he do that? Because they can't arrest him over there. He knows they want to arrest him. He needs to get out of Dodge, get out of Judea. He goes over to Perea because he's safe over there. Now, interestingly enough, the, you go back and read in John 10 and 11, the religious leaders in Judea want him to get back over to Judea because they can get him. And I'll tell you why in a few moments here. So they send some guys and say, hey, you know, Herod Antipas is out to get you. you. You shouldn't stay over here. I want to come back over here. You know, trying to trick him to coming back into Judea, but he's having none of it. Now, we're right on the edge, and you're thinking, where's this going, Billy? We're right on the edge if he receives word that Lazarus is sick. But Lazarus is in Judea. He's in Bethany. And so he decides, he delays a few days to go up to Judea to attend to Lazarus. Now go back sometime, maybe this afternoon, and read John 10 and 11 carefully. Thomas, the man that would doubt, remember doubting Thomas? Even makes a small little comment that John records for us that we often miss in our Bibles, where he says, well, let's just go up there and die. Why would he say that? Because he knows if he goes back up there with Jesus, there's, there's the high probability they're going to get arrested, they could lose their lives going back up into that territory because already the Jewish leaders are wanting to get Jesus. Now then the miracle of the raising of Lazarus happens. Now folks, I cannot in a moment stress to you how significant that is. I honestly believe it's the pinnacle of his Christ's earthly ministry. It is, it is a defining moment in Jesus' earthly ministry. He arrives four days. We read the account. Now, four days is significant, guys, because in Jewish tradition, four days is when you seal the tomb. This person's been dead. You want to give time. This is 
part of Jewish tradition. You want to give time to just make sure he's actually dead. You know, apologies to Monty Python and to Princess Bride. He's not dead yet. You, know, you want to make sure he's good and dead. So they give some time for this. And when they're absolutely convinced he's dead and, and the body is beginning to smell a little bit, you get this? You guys have all driven down the road and something's been dead for a while. You know what that, that lovely experience is like? You know, they want to seal that tomb up and say, okay, good, we'll start the Jewish morning, Sheva, it'll start. So four days into this, he is absolutely dead. They have sealed the tomb. And Jesus is about to make a statement that, is, that cannot be missed. So the tomb is sealed. He shows up and does something very profound. We read the account you know, they're obviously concerned. They wish he'd been there. He could have healed him. They're not realizing he is God. He has the power to raise the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, he makes the statement, do you believe this? And the response is telling. Let's run back in our mind to Matthew 16 when, when Christ gives the final exam to his disciples. Says, Who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the group says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's read Philippi. And what does, what does she say to Christ? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. She repeats that formula to him. And then Jesus says, Take that stone on the tomb and roll it away. Now you've got to imagine. I, I love what the King James says, says on this. Lord, we don't want to do that. He stinketh. You know, it's going to smell awful. Now, when they roll that tomb back, I can imagine, folks, in my collective imagination, there were a lot of people sitting there that just kind of went, oh, this is going to be bad. Can I take a big step back? Because when they open that thing up, there's going to be a smell coming out of there that is unmistakable. And they roll that stone back, and I'm sure all of them got a whiff. There's no question that Lazarus was dead. And Christ calls out, you know the account in John 11, Lazarus, come out of there, my paraphrase. And he comes hopping out of there in his grave clothes, and they got to cut him loose, unbind him. And it's interesting what the text says. Many, because of that event, believed in him. It was a signature event. They believed in him. I mean, I don't think we can con actually imagine what that would have been like. I mean, here's the guy, you come to his, his service. Imagine we go to a grave, you know, we got a casket up here in church, and the guy in the casket suddenly pops up out of the casket, and he's at the back door greeting us, thanking us to coming to his funeral. You think that would make an impact on you? And so all of a sudden, the whole city of Jerusalem, which is nearby, is hearing about this, and they're coming to faith in Christ. And the religious leader says, that's enough, we're done with this. Now here's where I'm going with the Passion Week. Read the end of John chapter 11. Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leadership, says, okay, that's it. This man's a fugitive. We've got to stop this. Otherwise, the Romans are going to come away and take away our place. What's significant about this event for the Passion Week, folks, is that Jesus is now a fugitive. Okay, do we hear, you hear me on that? He is a wanted man. Now go back and read John chapter 11 at the end. You'll see this because of the event of the raising of Lazarus. Now with that in mind, what Jesus does is he, knowing he is a fugitive now, he begins to avoid the possibility of arrest. He moves, it's interesting it says this, he moves to the area of Ephraim. 
Now, most of you, if I ask you to find Ephraim on a biblical map, would go, where in the world is that? It's a small little town just about five, six miles north of Jerusalem. It'd be the equivalent of me fleeing from Los Angeles and going maybe to Arvin, if you know where that is. Most of you are going, where's that? It's up near Bakersfield. It's not the end of the earth, but you could see it from there. All right? He goes up to this little town of Ephraim. It's no man's land. Nobody's up there. Nobody knows what's going on. It's just an out-of-the-way place because he's a fugitive. He then moves north into Samaria. No good Jew is going to go into Samaria. By now, we're getting to move closer to Passover. People are thinking about Passover purity. They're thinking about ritual and ceremonial cleanliness. They're not going to do anything that is going to jeopardize their Passover experience. And so going through Samaria is safe for Jesus. He's got good standing there. We could read John chapter 4. He could cut through Samaria. No chance any Jew is going to see him. Samaritans like him. He's got safety up there. He's fine. He's cutting north. And this is all deliberate, folks. You're saying, how's this time of the Passion Week? Hang on, we're getting there. So let's back up a little bit. Because of what happens with Lazarus, Jesus is now a fugitive. To avoid arrest, he's shot up to Ephraim with his disciples, this little out-of-the-way place, nobody up there, insignificant, no real significant Jewish presence, right on the edge of Samaria, kind of a no-man's land, and then begins making his way up what is called the Ridge Route, one of the important internal routes in Israel, going up towards Galilee. He's going through an area where he's safe. Now, when Jesus gets north, he's smart. He's, he's grown up in Galilee. He knows the habits of Galilean Jews. And what he's going to do is put himself into connection with the pilgrims going down to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Now, Passover, folks, is a pilgrimage feast. It's one of the three feasts in the Old Testament where, if possible, every Jewish male should attend it. In fact, of the three pilgrimage feasts, Passover is probably the most important and plays importantly into our story today. Now, with the Passover feast, guys, if you've ever done this, this is very important to the Jewish people. If you've done a Passover with any Jewish friends, you know the end of it, at the end of this long reading of the Haggadah, the story, this kind of what I call Jewish Thanksgiving, it's a big meal, you're eating, it's great. At the end of that, you end it with next year in Jerusalem. This is a feast you want to go to Jerusalem for. So Jesus is shooting north up through the hill country. He goes in, he's going to fall in with all of these Galilean Jews, these masses, literally folks, thousands and thousands of Galilean Jews making their way down to Jerusalem. Now, why would he want to do that? Folks, we know the answer, we just don't think of it. Safety in numbers. He falls in with them. He's popular. They're not going to try to arrest him. He's up in the north. He's up in Herod Antipas' territory there. He moves up there with his disciples. He goes up into the Herod Valley. And i got a picture of it here for you. One of the things I like to do is, well, first the map here behind me. Um, on this map, I believe I have a... Basically, if you look with me, you'll see... He goes up to Ephraim, that's that orange arrow there, makes his way on that line, the dotted line, up to Galilee, falls into this valley with the Galilean pilgrims, and then will come back a different route. You have two major routes here. You have the ridge route and the rift route. Okay. Now, where this is located, if you look at this map here, or this picture, 
This is actually taken from Mount Carmel. I could spend a lot of time there. A lot of good biblical geography right here. Okay, this is from Mark, Mount Carmel. I'm looking east. If you notice the mountains up on the right up there at the top, that is the end of the Samaritan Hills. There's a valley between the Samaritan Hills, and you'll see another ridge in the middle of the picture up there. That's the Hill of Moray. I could talk a lot about that with you, the Hill of the Teacher. But there's a valley between those two hills called the Herod Valley, and a lot of biblical history happens there. The story of Gideon happens in that valley. And Jesus falls into that valley. That's where all the pilgrims would get together, and they would assemble in groups, large groups, to go down to Jerusalem. They did this for safety. You didn't want to travel alone because you could fall into robbers or thieves. You know, that happens. So in traveling in these large groups, there is safety in numbers. And Jesus knows this. So he goes up there, falls into these groups with these people. And you got to imagine, okay, Jesus is with them. They're going to start making their way. There's protection with this, the crowds. The Jews are going to think twice because the crowds are trying to arrest Jesus. Now, as we follow this along... While he's traveling with these crowds, he's doing miracles, he's doing teachings, and you, can't, you can imagine, you know, he's with a couple hundred people, and you know, if you're in the group behind that, you're thinking, hey, I hear Jesus is up there, we've got to catch up and see what's going on. And so as he's going down from Herod Valley down to Jericho, it's a distance of about 60 miles, I've driven this road, I don't know how many times, guys, um, you, know, it is, you know, nothing else, just kind of catch up, see what Jesus is, see what he's doing. And so as he's traveling south over this distance, there, there are probably hundreds and hundreds of people kind of moving in with his group. And that's giving him safety. Okay? Now he'll arrive in Jericho. Now Jericho, guys, is sort of the, uh, I like to think of it as the Mojave of, of Israel. It's where you stop to kind of refresh yourself for the long drive up 395. You know what I'm saying? So everybody stops at Jericho to refresh themselves because the ascent up to Jerusalem is pretty significant. It's a hill climb. Uh, Jericho sits about 1,000 feet below sea level. It's one of the lowest cities on earth. Um, Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. You've got a distance of geography, about 3,500 feet of distance, and you have to do that. If you guys are backpackers, you'll appreciate this. Over about roughly 10 to 12 miles, you're going to make that climb. That's an ascent. When, when it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, you will appreciate it when you've done it. <laughs> it's a hill climb. All right? And so a lot of times pilgrims would stop there, they'd refresh themselves, they'd resupply, kind of rest before they make that arduous ascent up, the ascent of Adumim, the, the Wadi Kilt, going up to Jerusalem. So he's there. Now while he's there, obviously Matt taught a few weeks ago about the healing of the blind men. Remember the, the son of David comment, this messianic, you're the, you're the Christ, you are the Messiah. That's significant. There's this expectation. He's going to Jerusalem. Maybe he's going to proclaim he's the Messiah. Now, just before arriving in Jerusalem, they begin making this ascent, and Matt has taught us well through, and by the way, I just want to comment, I love Matt's teaching. Can I just say that? I'm going to get in trouble for this, but he is a good teacher. Guys, I, I got a little background with teaching, and, and let me just say, he is an awesome teacher. I'll go so far as to say 99.5% of the guys you hear on radio, don't listen to him, just listen to Matt. He's good. Now, I'm going to hear about this, I'm sure. So, Matt, give me a, cut me some slack, all right? You know, but he's a good teacher. So he's been teaching us through this. And, and you know, he's talked about, you know, the miracle of, of uh, you know, the healing of these blind men, the son of David. This is the time where, in anticipation of the kingdom, you remember he, he taught us about, you know, um, James and John's mom, the original uh, helicopter mom, comes to Jesus and says, hey, you know, put my boys next to you. You're going to go up there and set up this kingdom. You put them right next to you. 
This is all happening. Everybody's got this expectation. Jesus is going to go up to Jerusalem and establish this political kingdom that they'd been anticipating. And Jesus makes this ascent up this steep hill. But interesting, before he gets to Jerusalem, he veers off and goes to Bethany. Now, guys, Bethany is on the east side of Jerusalem, about two miles away. He's not going all the way into the city. But if I'm a Galilean pilgrim, I have no reason to stop in Bethany. There's nothing there for me. Now, for Jesus, he knows people in Bethany. Remember, a few weeks before, he had healed Lazarus. He's got good standing in the city of Bethany. It's a logical place for him to go. So he goes into Bethany. He's going to have dinner with Simon the leper. That's an interesting thing. Would you go eat dinner with a guy that had leprosy? <laughs> One of my friends jokingly says, I wonder what you eat with a leper's house. Finger foods? No, so don't touch that. Yeah, it's kind of gross. We're joking, all right? But he goes up to there. He's got good standing. Everybody in Bethany loves him because of Lazarus. Lazarus is very popular there. So he's got protection, everybody there. And by the way, folks, you need to understand, in the Middle East, this is very common. When I come under somebody's house, they are honor-bound to protect me no matter what. And so Jesus shows up at these homes. These people would die to protect Jesus. If, if they try to make any move on him, let me tell you, it's not going to end well for him. I have seen this myself multiple times in the Middle East. All right? So he's safe. He's under protection. Now, the rest of those pilgrims, as we're following the story, they have no interest in stopping in Bethany. They want to get up to, they want to, get up to Jerusalem. They've got business at the temple. They want to get ready for the Passover. So they're going to push on into Jerusalem. Now, why is that important for where we're going to go? Because we're about ready on the edge to start Passion Week. This is all, I built a big patio for a small house, but this, is the, this background is all there. They go pushing on ahead. And of course, the question, you read the end of John's Gospel, John 11, the question everybody in Jerusalem is asking is, is Jesus going to come to the Passover? Because he's a fugitive. Now think about it. You've got all these Galilean pilgrims flooding in. They've been traveling with him all the way down from the Herod Valley. They've been traveling with him for probably a week or two, going making this trip. They show up. The answer to that question is yes, he's coming. We were traveling with him. But he stopped over in Bethany. Now watch this, folks. He stopped over in Bethany to spend the Sabbath, spend Shabbat with his friends in Bethany. Which means, now watch this, he'll be here Sunday morning. When Shabbat is over, he's coming to the city on Sunday. So you got the whole city kind of anticipating he's coming Sunday morning. Now what happens Sunday morning? Okay? You're going to have the triumphal entry. Now, as we think about it, the Passover pilgrims are going to push ahead. They're going to bring the news that Jesus is on his way. He's just spending Shabbat. He's spending Sabbath over with his friends in Bethany, but he will be here Sunday morning. The whole city can anticipate his coming. Now, folks, I hope you're with me on this. I don't know how you imagine this, but I want you to, in your sanctified imagination, imagine the triumphal entry. I think if we're honest, we think of maybe a few hundred people showing up for this thing. Au contraire. Studies have been done based upon historical records of how many pilgrims would come into Jerusalem during a Passover. The most conservative estimates I have seen are 250,000, quarter of a million people showing up for this. Some estimates place it as high as a million people coming into Jerusalem for this pilgrimage feast. Now, go back and read your Gospels with that in mind when it says the whole city came out to meet him. We're not talking about a gaggle of a few hundred people meeting him and kind of proclaiming him as the son of David. No, we're talking about 
hundreds of thousands possibly witnessing him coming into the city. Now, if I'm a Jewish leader or a Roman, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try to arrest this man with that kind of crowd behind him. You know what I'm saying? They want to arrest him. He's a fugitive. But the problem is, how do I arrest him? With this popularity. Now, Matt has taught us through this, and I'm not here to, to talk about it with you. Talking about the, the trip, I have a map here of Jericho. There are two parts of Jericho. There is Old Testament Jericho. That's Tel Sultan. Uh, the Herod's palaces, that's New Testament Jericho. There's actually, in biblical times, New Testament, there were two Jerichos, which is why, when you read your Gospels, in one Gospel account, the miracle of healing the two blind men says he was leaving Jericho. Another Gospel writer says he was entering Jericho. And for a long time, critics said, well, that's a conflict. The Bible's wrong. No, it's not. The miracle happens between the two Jerichos. It's funny how the Bible answers its own questions sometimes. All right, so that miracle will happen between Tel Old Testament Jericho, and Herod's palaces, and he begins the ascent up the Wadi Kilt. The terrain as they climb up, I give you a picture. This is the Judean wilderness. Uh, the imagery of Isaiah 40 just screams at us. These crooked valleys, this crooked trail going up, this desolate area. Make it easy for him. The Messiah, the king, is coming into Jerusalem. One of my friends likes to say it this way, fix your potholes. Make it easy for him. The king is entering. And of course, we've gone over this. Pastor Matt went through these passages. Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right? And again, I won't go over what Matt has taught us on this. So he comes up, this is a little picture here. You have Bethany, about two miles away. Beth Foggy, Beth Phage, tomato, tomato, means house of fig. We'll talk about that in a moment. To the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. He comes on the backside of that ridge line right into uh, Jerusalem when he does come in the triumphal entry. Uh, I'll skip this uh, overview of the, the map of Jerusalem. Uh, the city itself is very small uh, in biblical times, in New Testament times. Uh, most of the people that would come up, these massive crowds, would basically live in encampments in surrounding areas. They'd set up kind of a camp and would come in to do their business with, with God during Passover. Now, Jesus will arrive on triumphal, the triumphal entry. Uh, he's very careful, very humble when he does this. He doesn't want to provoke or incite the Romans. The one thing the Romans are very concerned about is insurrection at this time of year. Uh, one of the reasons Pilate would come up to Jerusalem at this time of year was because he didn't have any particular interest in being in Jerusalem. He wasn't a religious man, but he knew this is the time where if there's going to be problems, it'll be during Passover. Why? Because Passover celebrates a time where God delivers Israel from a cruel Gentile overlord. Story of Egypt. Now you go to Rome, there's, you draw the parallel real quickly. So if there's going to be insurrection, it's probably this time of year. So all hands are on deck in the Roman cohort. So Jesus is going to be very careful to not provoke the Romans. He's going to come in humbly. He's not riding a war horse in. You get my point? And they're concerned. They don't want to arrest him. This is, the, this is Sunday. Now, at the end of this, Jesus will, Mark's gospel tells us, he comes into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, he looks around the temple. Now, this is where we were last, just recently with Matt. And what he sees probably nauseates him. What Josephus calls Annas Bazaar, the selling of items. 
It was going to be a grand ripoff. More to come on that here in a moment. Now, Matt showed us this picture of the temple. This is the model of Jerusalem at the Israel Museum. Um, basically, the temple complex is the building you see. Uh, there was a barricade, you can see it in the photo here, that was set around it, warning no Gentile past that barrier. Uh, we have found uh, in archaeology inscriptions saying, if you cross this barrier, you're a dead man. Okay, you see it in the Israel Museum today. In fact, it's interesting, I, I can't resist this, sorry, I got a little digression here, known to rabbit trail once in a while. Interesting, Paul mentions this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that in Christ, the barrier of the dividing wall is broken down. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile any longer. In fact, it's interesting, at the end of Acts, they accused Paul that he brought Trophimus, this Ephesian Gentile, past that line. That's why the riot breaks out. So the court of the Gentiles, as Matt talked about this, this is area around there. Of course, Jesus would eventually be teaching in the royal stoa, the colonnaded covered area there, but during... When Jesus comes in and looks around, all he's seeing is just money changers. He sees people buying and selling sheep. It, it was an entire racket book. I wish I had more time to develop it with you, but it was, it was a major source of income to the religious leaders. You talk about getting ripped off. And the problem was, if you're a Jew, there's nothing you can do. You can't go to the second temple down the street. There's only one temple. This is it. So you were at their mercy, and man, you were getting fleeced and ripped off, and you knew it, but you couldn't do anything about it. Now, let's start Monday and Tuesday. This is where we're in with our story, just real fast. I'm running out of time. I knew this was going to happen, but hang on with me, all right? Jesus will depart from Bethany. He's going to curse the fig tree on the way in. Now, that's the next section Matt's going to take with us, the cursing of the fig tree. I don't want to steal Matt's thunder with this, but I would take the fig tree to be a, a symbolic of the nation. He came expecting fruit. There was no fruit. He did this not because he was ticked off at the fig tree. Darn it, I was looking for food and no fruit. No, 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 no. There's a, there's, a, there's a teaching moment in this. I think the fig tree signifies a nation that he expected to gather fruit and there was no fruit. It's interesting that in the book of Matthew, you're going to see this imagery of the vineyard which all goes back to Isaiah 5, God's vineyard, and how this landowner sends people into his vineyard, that imagery that's going to be coming up for us in the next few weeks with Matt, all ties back to Isaiah 5. And man, you know the, the religious leaders know that's aimed at them. He will possess the temple. We've talked about this. He drives out the money changers. Now, folks, we cannot understand the significance of this. This is the time of year. The best way I can say to imagine this is imagine if, if somebody shut down Black Friday. No commerce on Black Friday. What would that do to the economy? That's exactly what Jesus is doing. This is the time of year where, man, these, these guys make some serious bank, and Jesus stops that practice altogether. And they're going to say, this has got to stop. Now, the people are going to love it. The people are saying, that's great, man. We don't like getting ripped off. Somebody's finally doing something about this. Jesus is wildly popular among the people. He will teach the masses and crowds. They're enjoying listening to him, it says. He is, he is on this Monday and Tuesday, he's going to be, uh, and again, we've talked about this with Matt, he will confront and confound the religious establishment. He's loving the fact he's beating these guys up in these debates. We just worked through this recently. He will pronounce eventually, and this is where it's going to trigger in Matthew 23, judgments. You remember the idea of the woes? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
It says they seat him in the chair of Moses. They love this chair of Moses. This is actually what one of those looks like, this seat in a synagogue that they would sit there. You're an important person if you got to sit in that seat. They love seating themselves in the seat of Moses. Now, late Tuesday afternoon, for those two days, he's possessing the temple. That's the key thing to take away. He's possessing it. He shut down the commerce. The religious leaders are trying to get him arrested. They've got to, they want to arrest him. In fact, the Bible tells us they were trying to do it, but they said not until the Passover's over, until, until the Passover's over, because we don't want to ride on our hands. This guy's too popular. If we try to arrest him now, they'll kill us. So for two days, Jesus is possessing the temple. He's acting in a messianic way. The disciples are loving this. They're thinking, okay, we're about to set up the kingdom. Everything's going the way we need it to go. I'm thinking those disciples, man, they're thinking he's about ready to pass out the, the kingdom assignments. They knew he said, you'll sit over the 12 tribes. And some of those guys are saying, hey, I'm hoping for Judah, man. I don't want Dan. I want the big stuff. All right? And everything is pointing to the fact that they are about to finally realize Jesus as this political messianic kingdom they had hoped they could be a part of that kingdom. The disciples, as they're leaving on, on um, Tuesday afternoon, are noticing the Herodian stones, the beautiful buildings that Herod had made, the temple. And Jesus makes an offhanded comment. He says, you see those stones? Not one will be left upon another which will not be thrown down. And I can imagine the disciples in their collective mind saying, say what? Now, that's going to launch a discussion of the end times. Matt and I have already been talking about that. <laughs> he says, yeah, I'm going to put the slow down on the thing. And, and they asked Jesus three questions, and I don't want to get into the Olivet Discourse. I'll save that thunder for Matt. But he begins talking about the future of the nation. He sort of outlines a plan for Israel and his return as the Messiah. That's what we know as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Matthew 25. We're heading that way as a church very quickly. Um, now, Judas provides an answer to the problem that the religious leadership has. They want to arrest Jesus. Jesus is a fugitive to them, but they can't touch him. He's got tens of thousands of people surrounding him. There's no way they can risk going in and grabbing him. But Judas says, I know his movements. I know where Jesus will be, and I can tell you where he's going to be if you want to grab him. Now let's understand, folks, and I think I was guilty of this years ago. I used to think, you know, they, that Judas's job was to identify Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. They, everybody knew who Jesus was. It wasn't a question of who is he, which one is he. Everybody knew it. But what they didn't know was what was his movements, where would Jesus go. And what Judas says is, look, I know where he'll be, so if you want to grab him sometime, I can tell you when that will be. All right? And he offers to betray him, say, I'll tell you where he is so you can get him when nobody's around. That's important. Now that takes us, here's some pictures. You want to see these stones that they were looking at, these ones that have a little border cut around them. Those are New Testament era stones in Jerusalem. Uh, that's the, the stone, kind of stones that the disciples were looking at there. Um, this is a picture. That's a street that goes back to the New Testament. You notice the stones that, that fell on that street. Um, that's evidence when Jesus said those stones are coming down. There it is right there. By the way, my lovely wife Kelly excavated that. <laughs> He did that back in 1995, excavating that, Roni Reich. So this is evidence of what Jesus described. Now, interestingly enough, this hill that you see in the background, that's where Judas would go to make his arrangement with Caiaphas. It's called the Hill of Evil Council. Caiaphas had a residency there. He went to that residency. 
to make, uh, make his plans with them. Uh, interestingly enough, folks, <laughs> the tower that you see in that picture, if you've got good eyes, that's the UN headquarters. The Israelis still refer to it as the Hill of Evil Council because the UN headquarters is there. <laughs> they don't like the UN, all right? All right, Wednesday, real quickly. It's a silent day, uh, mostly preparations. Um, uh, the disciples need to prepare for the Passover. It's a big meal. There's a lot of arrangements. Jesus is very careful to make sure Judas doesn't know what's going on. Uh, if you're interested, I can tell you more about that later. Uh, obviously, they need to make arrangements to get a Roman uh, cohort gathered to arrest Jesus when the timing is right. When Judas says, come get him, we'll come get him. That's all has to be arranged. Thursday, real fast, the men will go to this upper room villa, probably the nicest place in their life on Thursday night for Passover, which will be around 6 o'clock. The Passover is a very long meal, all right? It takes hours. During that time, he will wash the disciples' feet, an act of humility. Uh, he will reveal that one is about to betray him. Now, at this point, uh, you know, the, the disciples are sort of, sort of surprised by this. They're like, Who, what? They had no idea this was coming. And Judas, of course, knowing that he's done this, goes, uh-oh, my goose is cooked, so I better get out of here and let him know, because now I know where he's at. I know he's at this upper room. Let's go back, get that cohort, come get him. So Judas slips out. They probably, the disciples probably thought, oh, he's just making some arrangements. He slips out to go get help. All right? Now, Jesus knows that's going to take some time, so he's going to use those last few, probably an hour or so with his disciples to kind of cement some last things in their thinking in advance of his arrest. He will finish the Last Supper. During that time, gives the upper room discourse. Uh, he inaugurates the Lord's Supper. He gives us the high priestly prayer, uh, all in John uh, 13 and 14. He will leave after singing a hymn. He will depart the upper room around 10 o'clock at night. Okay? Now, once he leaves at 10 o'clock at night, that set in motion some things. Now, this is a picture of the Western Hill, this model, these villas, these beautiful, expensive homes that, that they, he was using. Uh, this upper room is Cataluma. It's like a guest quarters. Uh, they would sit in a triclinium on a floor. There's a picture of the seating on that. Um, the two seats next to Jesus were seats of honor and Imagine the disciples thinking that the, the, the kingdom assignments are going to be handed out. Well, those two guys just got it. You know, they're the ones sitting on the right and left. Um, Thursday night late, Jesus will leave. He will cross the Brook Kidron. Now, it's interesting John mentions this. Crossing the Brook Kidron, guys, is where all the runoff from the temple sacrifices would be happening. And a lot of scholars have speculated that Jesus watching this blood runoff from the temple. Remember, the temple basically is a slaughterhouse. They're killing hundreds of thousands of lambs for this facility. You, that all has to go somewhere, and it would drain down the Kidron Brook. And Jesus has to cross that. I don't think it's an accident John mentions this. Probably Jesus thinking, in a few hours, my blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sin as he makes his way to Gethsemane. He will come to Gethsemane, and again, Matt will go over this with us. I can save this. He will be praying. Eventually, Judas goes back with the cohort to the upper room. He's not there, but you know, they probably said, well, don't worry, I know where he goes. He's probably heading to Bethany. He might have gone over to get somebody this late at night. We've been there before. So he grabs the Roman cohort and heads to Bethany, or to uh, Gethsemane. Now, between 10.30 and midnight, Jesus is probably praying in agony over the events. And again, most of us know that story, so I won't recount it here for the sake of time. Now, some of the movements here, I give you a picture, aerial photograph. The upper room is just off the picture to the right. A hill of evil council, Caiaphas' house is over there. Gethsemane, Kidron Valley is this valley. The brook is down here on the east side of the Jerusalem area. Uh, the temple would have been where the modern Dome of the Rock is located today. That would have been the Temple Mount platform up there. 
Now, from midnight, Judas arrives at Gethsemane with a Roman cohort, over 600 soldiers. Guys, when we think of Jesus being arrested, we probably think of a dozen soldiers. Put that out of your mind. This is a technical term, Roman cohort. They had over 600 soldiers to arrest Jesus. Why? They were concerned about a riot. They want, they want to make sure that nothing bad comes out of this. So they arrest Jesus. Um, Peter initially decides to fight. You know, remember, Jesus had announced to Peter, you're going to betray me. And Peter said, no, I'm not. And I actually believe Peter, we owe Peter an apology. We're kind of hard on him. He was very sincere. In fact, he's willing to take on 600 Roman soldiers to prove that he wasn't afraid. And he'd die for Jesus. So let's cut Peter some slack. But Jesus doesn't want to be seen as an insurrectionist. He doesn't want to be seen as a rebel. All right? Now, he'd be brought to the council of the Sanhedrin around midnight, probably. Now, overnight, there'll be a series of trials. The first trial is more of an interview with Annas, the former high priest, Caiaphas' father-in-law. He will ask Jesus a few questions. Jesus kind of is silent with him. Uh, Peter will begin betraying. Uh, the second illegal trial happens when the Sanhedrin begins questioning Jesus. They have contradictory witnesses. Um, it's not going well. And out of, its, out of frustration, Caiaphas, and this is Leviticus 5, he shouldn't have done this, but he did it, puts Jesus under oath. And once he's under oath, you've got to answer. Now, technically, he should not have done that. That's not acceptable. But he puts Jesus under oath. He says, I adjure you by the living God. I, I want you to take an oath. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And of course, he says, yes, I am. Because he has to answer it, Leviticus 5.1. And they would say, we got him. Blasphemy. Now, that trial was illegal. So they wait. There's a third trial here until just a wee blush of sunrise. Because it has to be during the day. So once they got a brief blush of sunrise, they go ahead and do a second, a second uh, formal, the formal trial, the third trial, but second was the Sanhedrin. Sunrise is going to bring him to Pilate. Pilate's already been prearranged with this. He didn't show up in his bathrobe going, what do you guys want this time of the morning? Everything had been rearranged with Jesus' trial. Uh, there's a series of things with Pilate. Pilate interviews him. Pilate says, I don't see any problem with this guy. Here's Herod Antipas' account. Ah, he's from Galilee. That's Herod's area. So he kicks him across the building to Herod. Uh, Herod Antipas interviews him, wants him to do a miracle. He heard he was a miracle worker, and he kicks him back to Pilate. During this, Pilate uh, will eventually uh, interview Jesus a second time. Finally, the third time, there's a couple of private interviews. The Jews are tired of messing around with this. Now, Pilate, guys, and this is important. I'm, I'm over time. I'm sorry, folks. Bear with me for about a couple more minutes here. I knew this was going to happen. I hate clocks. Um, Pilate has sort of used up his mulligans with the Caesar. Pilate had come into power by a man by the name of Sarjanus. Sarjanus had been executed by Tiberius for sedition. And when they did that, they rounded up a lot of Sarjanus's followers and disciples and executed them as well. Now, Pilate was one of those guys. Pi Sarjanus was Pilate's mentor. And here is Sarjanus now dead, and Pilate knows, you know, I've, I've used, I'm on thin ice with the emperor because of my connection with Sarjanus. Now, you go back and read the biblical text at the end of this to get him to do their bidding. What do they say? We're going to say, you're no friend of Caesar's. Now, you can imagine in Pilate's mind, that's not what he wants to hear because he knows he's already on thin ice with Tiberius. So if they go to him and say, look, this man will not take care of a seditionist, Tiberius will take care of Pilate. You get my drift? So once that happens, Pilate's hands are tied, and he moves ahead. 
Now, the crucifixion we're all familiar with. There's Judas' remorse and suicide. They prepared Jesus for execution by flogging him and, and basically manhandling him. Uh, they uh, take him to the place of execution. They nail him there about 9 a.m. I have some photographs of this. This is the flogging process, um, crucifixion process. We could talk about that. I spent hours talking about either of these two things just in themselves. So running down Good Friday, this is what it looks like. He's stripped of his garments, the shame of the cross. Jesus would have been naked on the cross. We always portray him with a little loincloth or something. No, no, he would have been naked. He would have been at eye level, probably not elevated above. He would have been right there where people could walk by and see him. Shameful. Pilate has a titular attached to the cross, saying he said he's king of the Jews. Of course, the Jews wanted to change that. He won't. Bystanders are taunting him as they walk by. Say, hey, you said you're the king. Get off the cross. You could do that. Of course, you have the repentance of the thief of the cross. Now, from noon to three, things begin happening quickly. By 12 o'clock, you have an unnatural darkness that settles on the land. Uh, you have, by 3 o'clock, this uh, death of Christ happens. We actually have a time of death at 3. He cries out. It is finished. There's several things that will happen. They offer him sour wine, which is kind of a way of maybe softening, like a, uh, like a painkiller a little bit, just to kind of take the edge off the death. He refuses that. He wants to be clear-minded. Um, he cries out and dedicates his soul spirit to God. It is finished. And boy, there are three words that changed human history right there. The atoning work of Christ is done. It's done. And I don't hope we ever forget that. Now, from the time of death until the end here, real quickly, you have a major earthquake. There's seismic activity that has transpired. The temple veil is ripped. Matthew tells us ripped right down the middle. Um, you have a resurrection of some saints that happened during this time. You have the confession and fear of the Roman centurion. Certainly this man was the son of God by the events happening. They need to secure the tomb. Sabbath is approaching. It's Friday night. And so the soldiers will break the legs of the thieves to just get them off the cross, to hasten their death. One of the soldiers will take a spear, and they will literally shish kebab Jesus. If he's not dead, he is now. Just thrust it up his side into the vital organs. They will have a short window to get him off the cross, get him in the tomb. Friday afternoon, Joseph and Theo will request the body from Pilate. Uh, many of us know this from Good Friday services. Pilate, concerned about the death, gets assurances he's dead. He goes to the grave. His body would be prepared there in the grave, literally feet away. I think one of the things that shocks people when they visit Israel is how close the place of Christ's crucifixion is to the place of Christ's death. It's only a matter of probably less than 100 feet. So it's not a far distance to take the body. Uh, Nicodemus would bring in 100 pounds of burial materials. This is a tradition in Jewish culture. I don't have the time to elaborate that with you this morning. But they would prepare the body, begin the process. It took quite a bit of time. They can get that started on Saturday night, but they're going to have to quit at sundown when Shabbat begins. Um, the women note where the tomb is, and they have to stop preparations Friday night because now it's Sabbath. All work ceases. Now, real quickly, guys, and I apologize for going a little bit over, especially the music team, because you guys, I know you're kind of time-bound here. The religious leaders are concerned that the disciples might steal the body. They, they seal the tomb. Uh, Saturday, sundown begins. You've got to remember, Saturday begins on Friday night. It's kind of confusing for us, but it actually begins Friday night. Um, I kind of give you some pictures here of where that happens. That arrow shows where the gravesite is relative to the temple. You can kind of see it there, that red arrow. Uh, another arrow showing the modern city of Jerusalem where that is. Uh, and then, of course, Saturday morning, we all know it's the resurrection. I give you some pictures of what these burial tombs could look like as models. And some of my students demonstrating bodies in a grave. After a week with us, that kind of looks that's what they feel like. 
but that's uh, one of these tomb complexes that's there in um, Jerusalem. And of course, Sunday morning, the resurrection. Now, what are the lessons, guys? And again, my apologies for going over about eight, nine minutes here. Lessons from the Passion Week. What are our takeaways here, guys? The first thing I'd say is the Gospels devote significant attention to this one week of Christ's earthly ministry, and so should we. Uh, one of the things I would recommend we do is we get closer to it. Think about what happened on Palm Sunday. We usually come in on Palm Sunday. Yeah, Palm Sunday. Yeah, Palm Sunday. We tell the story. We have the flannel graph. But really think about it. during the week, this is what happened on Sunday. This is what happened on Monday, Tuesday. This is what happened on Wednesday. This is what happened on Thursday. This is what happened Thursday night. This is what happened on Friday. During Passion Week, I like to take and think about and meditate on the events of those days during that week. During this week, Christ offered some very important teachings to his disciples during his last week, particularly in the upper room. Things about sacrifice. Things about servanthood, washing the disciples' feet. Things about unity. Now, there's one in the middle of a pandemic. Man, I've never seen the church so divided as it is right now. And Christ praying for their unity. Discussions of leadership during this time. Very important teachings that we tend to miss are happening. The last things that Jesus is saying to his men before the crucifixion. Guys, if you had one last word to give to somebody, you'd think this is going to be the most important thing they have to say. Why don't we pay attention to it? Jesus wants his disciples to hear this. We should pay attention to it during the Passion Week. There are certainly critical Christian doctrines about abiding in Christ, John 15. The purpose of the Holy Spirit. There's another one coming. And finally, guys, the need to die. Now, let me apologize. I went over. Mia culpa. But you know, folks, this is a really important part of the gospel story. And we're in the middle of it now as a church. And as Matt wonderfully walks us through this, we need to kind of frame this into this week. Where does this fit? Matthew doesn't give us everything. We have to go to the other gospels for some of the detail and other little portions of this. But as we're thinking through this area, this week is very critical to our understanding. And of course, leading to Good Friday and the resurrection. Now, let me conclude us with prayer, all right? And I appreciate your patience with me. Let's pray. Father, certainly this week changed all of our lives. We are here because of this week. And Father, um, be with Matt, we pray, and with the elders and with the church that seeks to find this, this man to fill this position of, of family ministries. I pray that you would prepare that person, whoever that is even now, and that in your provincial uh, wisdom and timing, you would bring that person to this congregation. Thank you for Chapel City. Thank you for what it means in this community. Thank you for its testimony. Uh, thank you for these people. And we ask this all in the name of Christ and for his kingdom's sake. Amen.